The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, October 13th, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pasca. There's a new number one in college football. It's Mississippi State, which prompted one wag to note, huh, the second best school in Mississippi is the number one school at anything because football. So what I was trying to, oh yeah, I was, I was the wag. So what I was trying to do there is just to use the because something phrasing. It was like the lexicographer's number one word of the year, because something. I'm not, I'm not really good at it. It seems too um, newish to me, too internet-y. It seems like just a little bit short of balls. I was taking a cheap shot at Mississippi. And so I, I felt a little bad and I went and tried to uh, research other things that Mississippi or Mississippi State would be number one at. Didn't quite find too many. Noted that in 2007, the student newspaper was named the number one college newspaper in the South. So that's not really the number one in the nation. And it was seven years ago. Mississippi State's distance MBA program is ranked number 16 for best online graduate business programs for veterans. Wow, a lot of qualifiers there. In 2009, MSU School of Landscape Architecture was ranked second best program. Yeah, but that's many years ago. Recently, in the specific construction methods and materials ranking, Mississippi State came in seventh. So maybe my slight wasn't that slight after all. But I will say this, because I felt so bad about denigrating Mississippi, I went and I did a little more research. And I went to the National Information Center for Higher Education Policymaking and Analysis. There's some good charts there. Mississippi's not as bad as you think it might be unless you live in Alabama and hate it by nature. But Mississippi, yeah, it's a very poor state. It ranks like fifth to last in educational attainment, fourth to last for advanced degrees. So not a lot of highly educated people. But with that in mind, if you look at metrics like how many high school seniors are going to college, 78% of the high school seniors. Here are some neighboring states, Alabama, Louisiana, Tennessee, and Arkansas. Those percents are 64, 63, 62, and 65. What about percentage of the cost of higher education, percent of family income? 14.9. That's better than Alabama, Florida, New York, Texas, California. So Mississippi has some things going for it, and I'm sure right now... They're proudest of their football team. On the show today, one of my favorite comedians, George Carlin, gets a street named after him. Why the most horrible political ad of the season wasn't really so bad. But first, ISIS, or ISIL, or the Islamic State, and why one NATO ally isn't taking the fight to them as fiercely as the United States would like. Over the weekend, word came out that Turkey, a NATO member, would allow the U.S. to use air bases for operations against ISIS. Not so fast, Turkey said today. Turkey thus far has seemed strangely ambivalent about beating back the forces of ISIS, ISIL, the Islamic State, whatever you call them. Turkey calls them an enemy of Bashar al-Assad, the leader of Syria, and therefore Turkish President Erdogan calculates allowing these troops to fight their enemy is in the Turkish interests. Add to this mix that ISIS's main enemy in the region, the Kurds, are at best a headache for Turkey, at worst a threat. To the U.S., it spells a supposed ally working as kind of a hurdle in this fight against ISIS. Indeed, as the city of Kobani was under attack, Turkish intransigence in the U.S. eyes really began to grate. But let's now think about the Turkish perspective and the needle that Erdogan is trying to thread. Joining me now is Kamal Karishki. He is the Senior Fellow and Director of the Center on the United States and Europe's Turkey Project at Brookings. Hello. How are you, Kamal? Hi there. I'm great. 
So I understand that President Erdogan, his enemy is Bashar al-Assad, and Bashar al-Assad, the president of Syria, is certainly the devil you know. But is he underestimating the threat or potential virulence of ISIS? I mean, America is obsessed with this. doesn't seem like uh, Erdogan is, though. I'm not sure I would go along with that. I think there is a recognition uh, in Turkey, across the media, across various circles, and I think in the ranks of the government too, that ISIL does actually constitute a threat to Turkish uh, security, national security. But I think here there's a major difference between engaging militarily, ISIL would resolve the problem that Syria and Iraq faces in the long run. I have a feeling that the Turkish government, rightly or wrongly, is arguing that what should be addressed is the root cause of the problem rather than the symptoms. Right. I get that. Erdogan is playing the hand he's been dealt. He's made a choice. He's prioritizing al-Assad as the main villain here. He's willing to allow ISIL or ISIS to do some bad things up to a certain point because he would rather have it weaken al-Assad than have ISIL be weakened. Do you think he's right? Oh, very, very good question. I, I think the picture is much more complicated than the one I think he is seeing. The situation has become so complex that the world that we are accustomed with, the one where you have nation states, has pretty much crumbled in uh, the Middle East, especially in that particular part of the Middle East. Erdogan and maybe people around him are sensing that the, uh, the region is going through a transformation and uh, ISIL is not simply what it appears to be, that behind ISIL, there are Sunni tribes, there are Sunni groups, there is the, uh, the old Ba'athists who had for long held deep grievances towards the Iraqi government, especially the former prime minister. And I have a sense that, again, the people around Erdogan feel that the ISIL may not last the way it is for very long and at some point that when they face the issues, the problems of governance, the other groups, that is the uh, Sunni tribes, the Baathists, might come to the forefront and some kind of a balance may emerge. However, whether this is the case or not, time will tell. And I personally, as a person, feel very concerned about what the future uh, is pregnant for. I understand that it's a tough choice that the Turks have to make. The United States has never been allied with Syria under Assad or his father, and yet not really a hot enemy. You know, Syria wasn't one of the members of the axis of evil. And while they've been disruptive in Lebanon, like never on the top of United States concerns. Why is that? <laughs> You know, it's very interesting you should say what you just said, because until about three years ago, Turkey and Syria had very, very close relations, very close economic relations, very close social relations. And actually, Erdogan had very close and intimate relations with Assad himself. That was also a period when 
the United States government used to lean on Turkey, maybe not very heavily, but was a bit nervous about this very close uh, relationship that Turkey had developed with Syria. And in the back of uh, the U.S. government's mind was concern about Syria's relationship, for example, with Iran, Syria's close relationship with uh, Hamas. But I would agree with you that amongst all the states around in the world that would give the U.S. a big headache, Syria may have not been up on the top of the list. And that may also have had a lot to do with the fact that Syria and Israel had reached a kind of a unannounced uh, deal where they would not directly in any way challenge each other particularly on the battlefield. Last question. Do you think Turkey is living up to its commitment as a member of NATO? You know, that's a very good question you've raised because recently in the media, in the American media, I have seen columns and articles that advocate Turkey should be thrown out of NATO. One of the concerns that is in the back of the Turkish military, I feel, is that if Turkey was to take unilateral action in the case of Syria, would Article 5 of NATO apply? Because NATO is based on defense, and currently there are German and Spanish Patriot missiles deployed right along Syria to protect Turkey against any attack that might come from uh, Syria. However, one must not forget that NATO is a defensive organization. And interestingly, if Turkey was to take a unilateral action, that is an action not supported by the United Nations or at least not supported by NATO itself, it may not come to the defense and protection of Turkey. And this is going to be in the back of Turkish decision-maker's mind. That's how I see the picture that you're referring to, rather than whether Turkey is living up to its commitments as a member of NATO. Kamal Karishchi is a senior fellow director of the Center on the United States and Europe's Turkey Project at the Brookings Institution. Thank you so much. Thank you. The other day I was talking to my friend Mike Volo. You might know him. He sometimes produces this show, always produces Hang Up and Listen. He's talking about driving. I say, you know the old George Carlin bit, right? Anyone who drives faster than you is a maniac. Anyone who drives slower than you is an idiot. Look at this idiot. And I don't know if Volo knew it, but you know that old George Carlin bit? I must say that, you know, three times a week, let's just say. If you ask comedians, maybe comedians over 30, who their most favorite comics are, who are the most influential, they'll say Carlin and Richard Pryor. Richard Pryor for the autobiographical confessional stuff, and Carlin for the thoughts on language, but also the philosophy, and especially to me, I thought he crushed it when it came to issues of religion. This is from Class Clown. As Puerto Ricans began to move into our neighborhood, the diocese, in a rare display of tokenism in the early 50s, sent one Spanish priest, Father Rivera, to hear Spanish confessions. And all the Irish guys that were heavily into puberty would go to confession to Father Rivera. 
because he didn't seem to understand the sins, you know? Or at least he didn't take them personally, you know? It wasn't an affront to him. Well, one comic who was uh, clearly influenced by George Carlin but did something about it is Kevin Bartini. Kevin fought to get a street in the Upper West Side of Manhattan, West 121st Street, named George Carlin Way. George Carlin grew up on this street, though not necessarily the block that's being named after him. Kevin's here. Hello, Kevin. Hey, how are you doing? Thank you for having me on. Why not the exact block? The stretch of the block that George grew up on is uh, runs between Broadway and Amsterdam. And the reason that he grew up on that very block was that uh, when he was a little boy, his mother moved to a building on that block so that he could walk to school at Corpus Christi, which is the Catholic church and the parochial school, who back at the t- in the day had a very, um, I guess you could par- compare it to like Montessori type school. Uh-huh. There was no grades, no uniforms. It was very progressive, especially for the 40s. And uh, she moved there so he would have access to that school and wouldn't have to cross a city street. His mother maintained residence there till almost... I think until the 70s. Yeah. Anyway, so that would be a natural choice for yeah. the street. The However, street he grew up on, the street yes. he grew up on. On that street is Corpus Christi Church and Corpus Christi Parochial School to this day. The reverend at the time when I was doing this, who was uh, the head of the church and, and the school, had a personal grievance with George and uh, decided to fight us on this. So it made a, a what should have been about a year to year and a half campaign turn into a three-year battle that ended up with a compromise that we would move the street sign a, literally to the other side of Amsterdam Avenue, yeah. like 75 feet away. And it was, I got to tell you, it made it a lot more fun for me. And yeah. It made it a big press thing. And it was ridiculous because he was disingenuous in his argument. He the told reverend. me... Yes, he yes. told me in private when I first called and spoke to him about it yes. that he had a personal grievance with George, that he was friends with a number of priests from Corpus Christi who he thought George had slighted on albums and things like yeah. that. So that was his reason. But and so when he confesses to you, it wasn't protected by the confessional? No, I'm You're not a priest. I get to say whatever. Yes. But then when he decided to, to take it to go public, public yeah. and make a fight out of it, that would make him sound petty. Yeah. So he said he was trying to uh, protect the the children of the school from George Carlin. Eight-year-olds who were, uh, you know, busy listening to Occupation Fool and the classic album. Like they were going to walk past George Carlin way, see the sign, be like, who is that guy? Who is this? Right. And that would be terrible. Who is this uh, excellent and well-crafted and intellectual and groundbreaking comic? Exactly. Who, by the way, you know, 40 years later actually probably says things that are relevant to my life. Like, what's the deal with purgatory? And what happened to the babies in limbo? I hope they didn't just eject them into space. It was such a ridiculous argument and it was so out of character for the Catholic Church to want to protect children uh, <laughs> that we were literally Zing. when you know the first media storm happened and I was I remember vividly I was in the I think it was the Daily News or the Post one of the two and you'd open the, the paper that day and there was one page was this big article and and, and all about uh, how the priest wants to protect children and then literally the next page over facing it was some priest doing a perp walk for molesting kids and all that. Now, the it thing, was amazing. The thing about protecting children, so George Carlin had a number of great routines about growing up Catholic, but just, you know, mm-hmm. questioning doctrine. He questioned all sorts That's... of doctrine. He went after the Catholic Church. Yeah. Here, let's play a little of that. I want you to know something. This is sincere. I want you to know when it comes to believing in God, 
I really tried. I really, really tried. I tried to believe that there is a God who created each of us in his own image and likeness, loves us very much, and keeps a close eye on things. I really tried to believe that, but I've got to tell you, the longer you live, the more you look around, the more you realize something is fucked up. <laughs> something is wrong here. War, disease, death, destruction, hunger, filth, poverty, torture, crime, corruption, and the ice capades. <laughs> something is definitely wrong. This is not good work. If this is the best God can do, I am not impressed. Results like these do not belong on the resume of a supreme being. This is the kind of shit you'd expect from an office temp with a bad attitude. Many American Catholics who identify as Catholic, and I would venture to guess who go to Corpus Christi Church, could very much identify with these sentiments. And also, George had a, had a good relationship with Corpus Christi in particular for his entire life. I mean, if you look at, at Class Clown, he dedicates the album to about five nuns from the school. Yeah. There's a famous story about, you know, the seven words, and his mother... One of the nuns or, or the priest, she saw them and he had remarked that he had just heard George's album and she went into, oh, I'm so mortified by this. And, and the priest was the one who said, no, it's what he said was good and was right and was perfectly acceptable. And his mother then just changed her tune on it right like that. Getting back to your previous visit, Jesus, what can you tell us about the Last Supper? Well, first of all, if I had known I was going to be crucified, I would have had a bigger meal. You never want to be crucified on an empty stomach. The crucifixion must have been terrible. It was awful, I gotta tell you. Unless you've gone through it yourself, you could never know how painful it was. And tiring. It was very, very tiring and embarrassing. I think more than anything, it was embarrassing. You know, right in front of everybody to be crucified. But I don't know, I guess it redeemed a lot of people. What do you think about Christianity? Well, I'm a little embarrassed by it. Uh, if I had to do it over again, I think I'd start one of them Eastern religions like Buddha did. Now, Buddha was smart. That's why he's laughing. You wouldn't want to be a Christian? No, I would never want to be a member of any group whose symbol is a man nailed onto two pieces of wood, especially if it's me. Buddha's laughing. I'm on the cross. The street is already named George Carlin Way, and it's pretty cool. If you Google George Carlin Way, Google Maps already has it up there. So do you live in the neighborhood? Yes, I do. I live in Morningside Heights, just uh, on the other side of Morningside Park. Was it the connection, the geographic connection to Carlin, or the comedic connection? Was he a real big influence on you comedically? Yeah, I grew up, uh, I was a kid in the in the 80s during the comedy boom, and uh, I was really into stand-up since I was like five, six years old, and that's what I wanted to do. And... Uh, it was on cable, and I was watching everything. And when I was about 10 years old, my uncle, as we were leaving his house one evening, uh, slipped me Class Clown and Occupation Fool on vinyl. And, yeah. and it was one of those things, don't tell your parents. Yeah. I listened to it, and it just blew my mind away. It was He was talking about going to Catholic school, which I was going through, and I was a closeted atheist already, and I just knew whatever I said I would get in trouble for, so just ride it out. And I was listening to this, and I was really reacting to it on such a level, and has become a huge influence on my comedy and how I go about my craft. So it was when the idea came to do this, uh, it, it was something that I could get behind and be passionate about. What's going on at Caroline's the night, the October 22nd, the day of the street name? Yes. Well, first of all, at 1 p.m., we're actually unveiling the street sign, and that's at the corner of 121st Street in Amsterdam. It's a free public ceremony. Colin Quinn is going to speak. I'll speak. Keith Olbermann, George's family. And then that evening, we're doing a celebratory show 
at Caroline's. Colin is going to host it. We got Jim Norton, Ted Alexandro, Eddie Brill, and then a bunch of special guests and drop-ins and some very big A-list people uh, and some really cool surprises. It's going to be awesome. And that's the night of the 22nd at Caroline's. Stand-up comedian Kevin Bartini, a driving force behind George Carlin Way. Thanks, Kevin. Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. And now the spiel, the ad that's proved a minus. It's time to play talk show karaoke, where I provide the answer that a talking head should have. First, to understand the question, I will play what the Washington Post calls one of the nastiest ads you will ever see. Context. Greg Abbott, attorney general in Texas, is running for governor of that state. He leads Wendy Davis by a wide amount. Here's the ad. A tree fell on Greg Abbott. He sued and got millions. Since then, he spent his career working against other victims. Abbott argued a woman whose leg was amputated was not disabled because she had an artificial limb. He ruled against a rape victim who sued a corporation for failing to do a background check on a sexual predator. He sided with a hospital that failed to stop a dangerous surgeon who paralyzed patients. Greg Abbott, he's not for you. Now, what you can't see is the visual. It's a wheelchair. There's a photo of a wheelchair at the top of the ad. Greg Abbott has used a wheelchair since he was paralyzed in 1984. It was that wheelchair in the ad that got it labeled as nasty by the post that prompted ABC to run the headline, Wendy Davis attacks wheelchair-bound Texas gubernatorial opponent in new ad. Okay, putting aside the fact that the phrase wheelchair-bound is actually more offensive than anything in the ad, actually, let's not put that aside. Don't you have a copy editor, abcnews.com? Anyway, ABC On Air went in this direction. Hosting this week, Martha Raddatz put it to Democratic strategist Donna Brazil. Yeah, how will that go over, Donna? Do you think that ad will go over well? That, look, that is not the ad I would have run, but we're, we're talking about a candidate who's in a wheelchair. Are we? I know. So do you think that ad will work in Texas? I don't. I mean, she she's coming from behind. I don't know if that ad is going Let to... me step in here. Normally on talk show karaoke, there is a question asked and I will jump in. I will answer the question instead of the talking head. But it really seems that Donna Brazil needs an assist because where she takes her answer is just weird. What about that ad? That, that ad is not. It, it, it look. Let me just say this. The greatest hero of the Democratic Party, Franklin Roosevelt, was in a wheelchair. So we respect anyone with any disability. So the Democrats support Dr. Strangelove, Mr. Potter from It's a Wonderful Life, John Demonyuk, who was the guard at the Treblinka death camp, who was known as Ivan the Terrible at the time, fled to America, later used a wheelchair. Okay, maybe not. Donna could not defend the ad. Bill Kristol called the ad disgusting. Even MSNBC even MSNBC, which stands for even a bunch of liberals, specifically the liberals who were up with Steve Kornacki, could not defend the ad. Anybody here think, want to make the case this was a good ad? No. Please. I will. Actually, who the hell knows if it's a good ad? But it is a defensible point. Here goes. Greg Abbott was paralyzed by the negligence of a homeowner in a tree trimming service. Today, he gets about $15,000 a month, covers his expenses, ramps, wheelchairs, pain, suffering, all that. If he lives to 65, he'll have earned around $9 million, it's estimated. But as a public official, he's been for tort reform. He has capped medical liability awards at a quarter of a million dollars. He's capped punitive damages at three quarters of a million dollars. Remember, he may wind up being compensated almost $10 million. However, 
what I just laid out is too facile a case. Like, we can't say for sure what Abbott was compensated for. Was it economic losses? Was it pain and suffering? Because the entire agreement was settled out of court. Wendy Davis can't say, under policies that Greg Abbott favors, another young man paralyzed by a falling tree wouldn't have the same awards that he would have had. The best she could do is raise the general charge of hypocrisy. By the way, I think it's possible to deserve your settlement money. I think Abbott deserves his settlement money. And at the same time, to think in other cases that the courts have gone too far. And indeed, Greg Abbott seems to genuinely think that. Also, the charge of hypocrisy could be a little dicey, right? Hypocrisy is saying that what someone does is at odds with what someone says or the policy he favors. Now, clearly, Wendy Davis is criticizing the tort reform policies that Greg Abbott favors. But it's easy for the non-careful listener to conclude that Wendy Davis is criticizing the first part, how much money Greg Abbott gets for his settlements. I have seen her being attacked, saying she begrudges Abbott his settlement. Abbott himself has said, believe me, I'd give all the money back if I could have my legs back, which isn't the point. I've also seen people say this about Wendy Davis. These are all from Washington Post comments. Wendy Davis is desperate, but that doesn't excuse highlighting the fact that your opponent is in a wheelchair. And the best shot she has against winning against her opponent involves using visual aids which are intended to capitalize upon the opponent's physical handicaps. And this Wendy woman has no shame. First she aborts her children. Then she attacks a person in a wheelchair by mocking his disability. You know, those comments filled in the gaps for me. I have to tell you, I didn't get what the big deal was about the ad. I first saw the ad via a tweet, which didn't describe it as callous or anti-people with disabilities, just a short tweet that said this was the low point of the 2014 campaigns. So I watched it, and I watched it again, and I said, huh? It didn't register at all that this was an attack on a person in a wheelchair because he's in a wheelchair. I know Greg Abbott's in a wheelchair. I've interviewed Greg Abbott in person. Anyway, I don't think less of people in wheelchairs. If anything, I have more respect for people in wheelchairs who accomplish a lot. I think it's kind of a common opinion to have. Well, not more respect for Dr. Strangelove. Let's put him aside. But I don't have this automatic, almost Victorian attitude of not mentioning the chair or averting my gaze or politely changing the subject. And I do think a lot of the reaction... And I think it's an honest reaction. I don't think it's the partisans trying to gain an advantage. But I do think it's tied up with this idea. Actually, it's not an idea. It's tied up with a gut feeling that the disabled should be treated a little more carefully, a little more gingerly. I think you see that in the unbiased news reporting on the incident. Because so many stories think it's important to note at the end of the story or somewhere in there, Abbott has also used the wheelchair in his ads. Well, of course he has. Why wouldn't he? I think the implication of that sentence is that maybe it makes the wheelchair open season or something. It's so odd. How could anyone think that attacking a disabled opponent for his disability would be a successful campaign tactic? I mean, I guess that's what Wendy Davis's critics are saying. How could she think that would be successful? But she and her advisors, they literally don't think that something perceived as an attack on a man in a wheelchair because he uses a wheelchair would play. It's not like a dog whistle or racial codes that you think might work. It's just something that Wendy Davis couldn't have thought worked. So there's obviously obviously another reason she put the wheelchair in the ad to underline the hypocrisy charge. Still, I don't, I'm not saying it was a good ad. Not really. Look at how horrified MSNBC, even MSNBC's Mika Brzezinski was. I yikes, cringed. So yeah, bad ad. Disgusting? Nope. Out of bounds? No. Truthful? 
That's debatable. Indicative of some underlying hangups? Demonstrative that the collectively appalled media were showing their pity on their sleeves? Yeah. Actually, I endorse that message. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi is producer of Slate Podcasts. As a podcast producer, she wants you to know that she supports anyone with an overmodulated mic who's running an air conditioner in the background. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, notes that the greatest executive producer was The Tonight Show's Freddie DeCordova, who was the son of con artists, and therefore Andy Bowers has nothing but respect for con artists. You can listen in SoundCloud or go to iTunes. We are on Yo. You get that app. You subscribe to Podcast. We'll tell you when the show's ready. Or you could go to our email, slate.com slash gist email. Sign up for it. It will tell you when the show is ready. We're on facebook.com slash slate gist. Our Twitter feed is slate gist. Email us at the gist at slate.com. As the son of a Catholic and a Jew, I support all such sons, be they Oliver Stone, Sean Penn, J.D. Salinger, Amanda Bynes. This is not a good list. Oh, my God. Courtney Love. Yeah, God. Oh, wait. I got one. I got one. Jerry Orbach. I'll stand by him. Thanks for listening. Thank you.